Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're halfway through August. And just like Zach, we are facing some new challenges as the restrictions ease, at least hopefully longer term than just a week or two. And we're facing a new school year and the start of a new ministry season. All of that stuff looms before us. Many of us will be taking on new adventures like attending a different school or starting a new job like Zach or considering a new volunteer position somewhere. You name it, the end of summer holidays has always signaled things are about to get moving again and along with it comes the uncertainty of the unknown. That mirrors some of the feelings that the disciples encountered, I'm sure, almost every day as they followed Jesus. Today we're gonna look at a very familiar event to most of us in their journey. At the beginning of chapter 14 is the grisly account of John the Baptist's imprisonment and beheading at the hands of King Herod. Hearing of John's death, Jesus withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place, but by now a crowd was following. His every move was under scrutiny and they were waiting for him when he reached the other side. And true to form, he set his own needs aside and had compassion on them and healed their sick. This then was the large crowd that stayed with him in this remote place and had no food when evening approached. So that this led to the wonderful miracle provision as Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 men and their families. We often overlook when we look at that story that Jesus was actually intending to find some solitude. Jesus was looking for a place to grieve the loss of John in his life. Instead, he ends up ministering to 5,000 men and their families. And this leads into the next event where we will ourselves sail today with the disciples, for immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. This is why it's a good idea to gain the context of an, of an account, even if it seems to stand alone. For if you were just to stick strictly to this event, there's a couple of things, minor things, mind you, but some things that aren't clear. For instance, why does it say the boat rather than a boat? And how convenient that there's a boat there. No, we know by reading before this that the boat, they had arrived on that boat. The boat was there. Why did Jesus stay behind and send the disciples on ahead? Well, the answers are now obvious. They had just used the boat earlier to cross the lake, and Jesus' first intention to go across the lake was to find a place of solitude where he could mourn and grieve. And so now the opportunity presents itself, and he sends the disciples on ahead. Meanwhile, back on the boat, the disciples are crossing back over the Sea of Galilee. I'm sure this was usually a walk in the park for Peter and his friends. And many of them, the, the guess is somewhere around six or seven of them had at least some fishing experience. They'd grown up on or around this lake. They had, they had done this more times than they could count day or night. The Sea of Galilee for a sea is pretty small. It's 20 kilometers long and 11 kilometers wide. What makes it unusual is that it's 45 meters deep in the center and 207 meters below sea level. And well known for its sudden storms which sweep in from the Mediterranean Sea, which is only 40 kilometers away, creating six meter waves at times. Sometimes the storms in our lives are like that, that you can't see them coming. There's often little or no warning. 
That's what scares us about storms. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. You can't predict it, but when it hits you, yeah, then you know it. Now, it's interesting to note that the gospel writers of this account, Matthew, Mark, and John, never actually call it a storm. They just talk about a very strong wind. Nor do they say outright that the disciples were afraid for their lives because of it. We can infer it, but it doesn't say that. We do know, however, that it was the middle of the night now and the wind was so strong that the boat is being tormented by the waves. The disciples are straining against their oars, just trying to keep it pointed into the wind. And in about what measured up to about six hours worth of rowing, they've only made it halfway across. Then one of them notices some movement on the water. It's gone for a moment, but, but yeah, it's there. A definite shadow moving towards them. But that's impossible. We're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Who or what could be out in this storm and frankly able to make headway into this wind on top of all that? As it got closer, it became apparent that it was a figure of a person walking on the water. Okay, time out here. Imagine yourselves in this situation. Anybody here see the movie Perfect Storm? Let the image sink in for a second. You were one of the disciples. You're about done in with the effort just to keep the boat pointing into the wind and keeping it from capsizing. I'm sure they were thinking, oh man, if only Jesus was here. And then first one, then another, thinks they actually see him approaching. Now, if one of them was into psychology in some way, they'd be marveling at this mass hallucination that everyone was wishing so hard that Jesus was there that they actually convinced themselves that he is. This doesn't make any sense. It's defying the law of gravity. There is only one logical conclusion. They'd all seen the Halloween movies when they were growing up. This was clearly a ghost. And for the first time in this account, all the writers say they screamed in terror. Bad enough to potentially drown, but now this. In short, they lost it. Jesus calls out to them then and says, hey guys, chill, it's me. Take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. Peter calls back and says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. If it's really you, I love that. Who else could it be? Who else did they know who had been performing miraculous miracles, multiplying, healing, raising the dead? Who else could be out for a stroll on top of the waves if it's you? Even for the disciples sometimes, it took eyes of faith to recognize when Jesus was around. Sometimes in the middle of a storm, tormented by waves of stress, disappointment, doubt, we also fail to recognize that Jesus is with us. Now, there are a couple of things to note about this predicament that these men find themselves in, which maybe can help us too. Firstly, they had not just foolishly decided to go out for a midnight cruise and got caught out in the boat in the storm. They had entered the boat at Jesus' command in the first place. They were obedient. They were doing what Jesus wanted them to do. They were learning, as we must also, that obedience, following Jesus as one of his disciples, is no guarantee of being spared the storms of adversity. They will catch us unaware at times. The life of following after Jesus has its costs, and Jesus never shied away from telling us exactly that. Secondly, Jesus often comes to us when he is least expected. Isn't that true? 3 a.m. in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee was, I'm sure, not where the disciples expected to meet up with Jesus. I can assure you of this. 
these moments will come to you and to me. Jesus makes it very clear that he's standing at our door and knocking, asking us to hear him and open up, yield to him, give direction of our lives over to him. Perhaps unexpectedly, Jesus has walked by you already this morning. Right here, right while you've been sitting here. You've been expecting it, whether you're here or whether you're at home. But he's with you nonetheless, perhaps even tapping you on the shoulder of your heart and saying, it's all right, I'm here. Don't be afraid. Thirdly, we can learn that it is in these moments that we can see more clearly just who Jesus is as he reveals his presence with us in his power, his power to the point where we say, ha, only God could do such a thing. You really are the son of God. We're gonna talk more about that next week. 12 disciples in the rocking boat, and we don't know how 11 of them responded specifically to this voice, perhaps with confusion, perhaps wonder, disbelief, perhaps fear, perhaps all of the above. But we do know that one of them, Peter, is about to experience God's presence and power like he'd never known before. Peter is going to do something radical. Jesus simply responds to Peter with come. So Peter goes to the side of the boat. The others are watching. Would Peter actually go through with this? He was always the hot-headed one speaking before thinking. It got him into trouble before, it will again. He puts one foot over the side, no doubt gripping onto the edge of the boat with grim determination, maybe even white knuckles. Then slowly the other foot, and then Peter does something unbelievable. He lets go. He gives himself over to the power of Jesus. Instead of abandoning ship, he abandons himself utterly into Jesus' care. And just as suddenly he realizes that he's not breathing water, that he's actually walking on it. If you'll pardon the pun, pun this is the high water mark of the story. And it's contained in the single phrase, Peter walked on the water toward Jesus. No ledge just below the surface, no special effects trick. Peter knew the joy and freedom of experiencing God, God's power in his own life after taking an enormous step of faith and jumping ship. The feel of water somehow being solid beneath his feet, contrary to all he'd ever known as a fisherman. The rush of the wind in his face, the startled looks of his fellow boatman who had no doubt written him off already as an ex-friend, old friend, past friend. He walks past them outside the boat, doing what Jesus was doing. And then, but then, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. The question is, is this a story of failure? We don't have much patience for failures, do we? A team starts having a losing season, ticket sales plummet. We've learned to hate losers and love winners. We canonize champions. We adore achievers. We worship winners and we sanctify the successful. Nobody, nobody wants to be a failure. But like it or not, failure is a part of life, isn't it? Yet nobody wants to be called or considered a failure. Many people will do anything, lie, cheat, steal, in order to look like success rather than failure. It's that important. It's the one thing you, you don't want to be labeled as, a failure. As a result, we fear failure. We're afraid of what it might do to us. If I fail, what will happen to me? What will other people think of me? Will I be rejected? Will anybody love me? Will I be considered worthless? The fear of failure is a pretty universal fear, and it causes enormous stress in our lives. The fact is, 
I've never met anybody in life who said, my personal mission statement is to give up. My life goal is to fail. Everybody wants to succeed. Everybody has this fear, though, that they might not. Although you all look pretty together, well, with a few exceptions, I have a hunch that probably there has been a failure or two that has come your way. If we all know this about each other, it can be a liberating thing. At this point, I'm going to ask us to do what I love to do, a mass confession, right? I'm going to run through a few categories, and you can raise your hands, whether you're at home or whether you're here, when I get to, you know, when I get to the end or when it's appropriate as I mention something. Okay, are you ready? Okay, yeah, that was real enthusiasm. Okay, here we go. If you've ever failed a test in your life, got cut from a team or an addition, something you tried out for, didn't get, didn't get a job you went after or a promotion you were hoping to get, then raise your hand right now. Have you ever acted inappropriately, impatiently with a three-year-old, slept during a message when you wish you had stayed awake, stayed, awa stayed awake during a message when you wish you'd had slept, <laughs> said the wrong thing, ate the wrong, with the wrong fort, wrote, uh, wore synthetic fibers, fell off your bike, belly flopped when diving, or experienced moral, athletic, academic, social, fin financial, relational, or vocational failure of any kind. If you have, would you raise your hand high? How many of you have personally never failed, but the person next to you looks like they may have done that a few times? Yeah. So let's simply make a series of observations about failure here. Today we're going to face failure in the eye, kind of like Peter did, and see what we can learn. The first thing, of course, is, as I've said, it's universal. Everybody fails. You cannot grow without risk, and you cannot risk without failing. A life of failure avoidance is simply no life at all. The boat where the other disciples were was relatively safe, relatively secure, relatively comfortable compared to water walking. I don't know what your boat is, but if you get out of your boat, whatever your boat might happen to be, there is a possibility, a distinct possibility, that you might sink. On the other hand, if you never get out of the boat, there is a guaranteed ironclad certainty that you will never, ever walk on water. You've made mistakes? Welcome to the human race. It just means you're alive, frankly. The Bible says in James, we all stumble in many ways. All, we, we're all living proof of this verse, aren't we? People often say, I wanna do this, but what if I fail? I wanna say again, what do you mean if? Failure is a part of life. Failure is the pathway, honestly, to success. You're going to fail, we all stumble in many ways. NBA basketball players miss, on the average, 50% of their shots. In professional baseball, an outstanding batting average is 300, which means seven out of 10 times when you get up to bat, you're up to bat, you're walking back to the dugout. You strike out more than you get on base. Those are the stars of the game. Those are the ones who get the big bucks. Everybody fails. The Bible says everyone has sinned and falls, falls short of falls has fallen short of God's glorious standard. I heard a pastor who was teaching on this verse one time. He said, we've all fallen short, people. Thank God that he forgives our falling shorts. <laughs> Morally, we all have falling shorts. We all miss the mark. 
When you let go of the image of being perfect, the fear of failure will lose its grip on your life. The Bible tells us that everybody fails. Peter stops looking at Jesus and starts looking at the effect of the wind on the waves and becomes afraid and sinks. The second thing we can learn is that focusing on failure is unnerving. When whether Peter would walk on the water or sink is, has depended on whether his attention is focused on Jesus or on the storm. Peter st started looking at Jesus, but when he stopped, he got unnerved by the strong wind and its effects. One of the key questions when we face steps of faith is, where are our eyes fixed? Is your attention focused on God in those steps of faith, is on his power or on your fear? If it's fear, Guaranteed, it will overwhelm you every time. And I tell you, your perspective of failure, how you and I view failure, how we see it, has such a determining value as far as how we're going to respond, whether correctly or incorrectly, to it when it comes. And all of us have seen this. A while back, there was a basketball commercial on featuring Michael Jordan. He walked into an arena, and the people are chanting, Michael, Michael! And he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots during my career. I've single-handedly lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and I've missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And then he adds, that's why I succeed. MJ had the right perspective. And when you go through the Bible, you find that there are some biblical characters that had the right perspective, the right response, and some that had a terrible response or perspective to failure. Look at King Saul and King David. Both of them sinned many times and had many failures in their life, and yet Saul took them personally and never seemed to get on top of them. David was quick always to repent. The New Testament has so many examples. Because of time, I can't pull them all out, but when Paul was on his missionary journey, John Mark quit and left him for a while, and so did... Yeah, nobody remembers. Demas. Demas never came back, but John Mark did. You see the perception of failure, the response to failure. Your focus literally makes or breaks us in almost every area of life and certainly when we face challenges. So we can choose to flounder in failure or water walk. The way to live is to live in the power of God. Live with eyes focused on Jesus, his adequacy for your life, and the continued awareness of the presence and power of God. When Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he was walking on water. When he took his eyes off Jesus, he was overwhelmed by the storm and gave in to fear. The question still is before us, was Peter a failure? And this brings me to the third thing, the third issue about failure. It's become unclear what failure really is to us. Failure, you see, is not an event. Failure is the judgment we place on an event. Failure is not so much something that happens to us, but the way people label a life experience as it happens to us. Everybody falls, everybody fails. We have belly flops in our lives over and over. The difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is not that successful people never fail. They do. They fail as much or maybe more than others. What's the difference? Successful people simply get up and keep on going. Learn. Successful people simply don't quit when they blow it. Successful people are persistent, determined, diligent. They have endurance. Successful people keep on going after they've fallen. They learn from those fallings. A righteous man falls, but he rises again. 
Paul understood this. He said, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Everybody fails, but it's not failure. You're never a failure until you quit. You're never a failure until you give up. As long as you keep trying, you're not a failure. Let me redefine failure for you then. Failure isn't failing to reach your dreams. Failure is not having a dream in the first place. Failure isn't setting a goal and missing it, having something to shoot for and falling short. People do this all the time. Failure is not having a goal to shoot for in the first place. Failure is not falling down. Everybody falls. Failure is staying there. Failure is not getting back up. It's saying, I blew it. I tried. I tried out for baseball, but I didn't hit the ball on my first swing, so I'm giving up. I tried riding a bike, but I fell off. Forget it. No, you keep trying and learning until you get on it and stay on it. But if you keep giving up when every time you try something and initially you don't have success, you're never going to succeed at anything. Failure is refusing to try again. On the first day of preschool, I got sick. Probably kind of should have given me an idea of how I was going to feel through all of my schooling. It wasn't exactly an auspicious start to my educational career. Can you imagine me coming home that first day, walking up to mom and dad and saying, I'm a failure at education. I might as well just chuck the whole thing. Why didn't I think of this? <laughs> I might as well just chuck the whole thing. Just because you fail doesn't mean you give up. You get back up, you go back the next day and you try it again. How many of you have ever missed a meal? What did you do? I'm so inconsistent, I'm going to give up eating. I'm a total failure because I missed a meal. If I can't be consistent, I'm just not even going to do it. Where does this strike us the most? When we talk about devotions and reading the Bible. They say, I did it for a few days and then, then something happened and I didn't do it. I, and I, and I, I quit. Or I started again and then I missed a day and, well, I gave up. I'm so inconsistent. I'm just not going to read the Bible anymore. If you miss a day reading your Bible, the next day just pick yourself up and start reading again. Get back at it, feeding yourself on God's Word. Babe Ruth hit 714 home runs during his career, but he struck out 1,330 times. Nobody talks about that. He struck out almost twice as many times as he hit home runs. Yet he once said this, listen to this, never let the fear of striking out keep you from taking a swing at the ball. Some of you are so afraid of failure. We've never, we're never going to succeed because we won't try. Or we try something and we give up. We don't hang in there. But that's how we get good at something. Before Jonas Salk, the guy who came up with a vaccine for polio, before he found a vaccine that worked, he attempted 200 times to vaccinate for polio that didn't work. One time somebody asked him, how did it feel, Jonas, to fail 200 times? He said, huh. I never failed. I just discovered 200 ways how not to invent a vaccine for polio. Somebody once asked Winston Churchill, what most prepared you to bear the great load and lead Great Britain alone for a while against Nazi Germany at the beginning of the Second World War? Churchill's response was, there was a time when I had to repeat a grade in elementary school. What? The interviewer asked, do you mean to tell me you failed a grade in elementary school? Churchill's response was, I never failed anything in my life. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. 
Were they failures? Was Peter a failure? No. Did Peter fail in that moment? Yes. Spectacularly so. He took his eyes off where they should have been and he sank. But friends, I think that there were 11 others sitting in the boat who failed quietly. They'd seen Jesus. They'd heard him. They'd even seen Peter take some steps. Don't you think one of them might have said, how cool is that? Look at him go. I want to try. No one did. Their failure was private and went unnoticed and generally uncriticized. It always seems safer to stay in the boat. Only Peter knew the pain and the shame of public humiliation and failure. Some of you are experiencing that perhaps right now. Some of you have and some of you will. Some of you are in the midst of gut-wrenching failing. It's painful and it's embarrassing, but whatever the reason you're sinking right now, the Bible says that Jesus is wholly adequate to save. Just call out to him as Peter did. I believe he wants us to understand the nature of a heart of a follower of his, a disciple. The desire of a follower's heart is expressed by Peter in just these few words. Jesus, tell me what to do. Jesus, tell me what to do. Some of you need to say that to him today. Tell me what to do. For some of you, it might involve a new attempt in ministry and in serving God in ways such as teaching, leading, something you've never done before. You might be nervous about it. Maybe you'll fail. Maybe it's volunteering in something you've never tried before. By the way, we so need volunteers in virtually every ministry. Just call the church. You might be nervous about it, but I will never forget the first time I was thrust on a stage to speak. It was an election speech as I was running for student council president of my high school. <clears throat> when I was introduced and walked out on the stage, I froze, literally, I froze. I understand terror. Everything that I had rehearsed, including my name, left me in that moment, and I stood before about 400 of my peers and just stared at them for the longest time. I remember at that last moment what you all are calling dad jokes that I do. And I said it and then literally exited stage right on the run, wondering how in the world I could attend school the next day. The first time I was thrust up on stage to speak to a congregation, I carried a chalkboard eraser with me. No chalk, no chalkboard, just the eraser. I was trying to fool myself into thinking this was just another Sunday school class and I can do that. For the life of me, I couldn't tell you what I spoke on. As the 30 minutes mercifully was drawing to a close, I suddenly realized that I didn't know how to end. So again, I just stopped and I walked off the stage. <laughs> wondering how in the world I was gonna show up for work the next day. The third time I spoke, I was prepared this time. <clears throat> I told everything I knew about the Bible, God and theology in that message in 30 minutes, sat down next to the senior pastor afterwards. He leaned over to me and he said, that was a disaster. But it didn't matter because God wanted me to learn and get up and try again. Now I can sometimes go 45 minutes and hardly say anything I know at all. <laughs> For some of you, the call this fall is to enter into a new level of community, to reach a new level of vulnerability with a friend or in a cell group and have some accountability, some openness, some honesty in your life that's been shielded or guarded for so long in the boat. For some of you, it might involve changing your job or going to school or getting a new depth in a relationship or even having a conversation with someone that's kind of been festering 
and you need to do something about it. You're holding back because you're haunted by the question, how do I know I won't fail, right? The answer is, you don't know. You never will, you might. A commitment to loving God and loving others, being discipled and making disciples means that fear will always be trying to drown you. It will always be trying to take you down. Peter knew the pain and the shame of public failure, but Peter, because he stepped up, also knew some other things. He knew the glory of walking on water. Once you walk on water, I have a feeling that you never forget that for the rest of your life. I have a feeling that Peter carried that one with him to the grave. Some of you have known what it is to step out on obedience to God and see him at work in your life in a way that can't be explained in any other way. Some of you know what it is to walk on water and be held up by the very power of God and you will carry that with you to the day you die. Another thing that only Peter knew was the glory that it is to be lifted up by Jesus in a moment of desperate need. In a way that others could not know, Jesus, uh, Peter knew that when he sank, Jesus would be there and that Jesus was wholly adequate to save. He had a shared moment, a shared connection, a shared trust in Jesus that no one else had because he stepped out of the boat, because they never got out of the boat that other disciples didn't. So what was it that Peter had that the other 11 did not? What prompted Peter to get out of the boat and walk on water? I think there were two primary things. The first is really obvious, it's faith. And we've talked a lot about faith over the last year. The other is the freedom to fail. Peter not only had faith in Jesus' power, he also knew about the freedom to fail. He had learned that the fear of failure is far more damaging to your life than failure is, and that the only way to grow, the only way to follow Jesus was to take the risk of failing. He'd come to realize that freedom to fail is the freedom to grow. He'd come to recognize the benefits of failure. We usually think of failure as a negative experience, but wise people learn from failure and use it to their advantage. Wise people make the most of failure. They grow from it. They use it as a stepping stone out of the boat and onto the water. This is counterintuitive, but when you really think about one of God's primary tools in making us into the kind of people we are is failure. Failure is one of the tools God uses in our life to mold us, to shape us, to develop our character. We rarely learn anything from success, do we? When we succeed, we don't stop to figure out why we succeeded. We think we were good. We just, we are too busy enjoying the moment. We never ask, what now, what happened there? What, 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 what went right? But we can learn from our failures because we're always asking the question, what, what happened? And God uses those in our lives for multiple benefits. There are many ways, but here's just a couple real fast. First, God uses failure to educate us. We've just talked about that, how he teaches us, how we're growing. Failure is how we grow, which adds an interesting twist into the question of the day. If we're not making any mistakes, are we growing? If we're not making any mistakes, are we growing? Are we as individuals and as a church pushing the envelope? Are we taking risks? And if we're not taking risks, why not? Are we afraid of failure? Are we being unfaithful? Because it certainly doesn't require any faith to stay in the boat and play it safe. So here's your assignment for this week. I want everybody to make a mistake this week. Don't make the same one you made last week. If you do that, you're not learning, you're not growing, you're not taking notes. But make a mistake this week. And you'll have to learn that lesson over and over again if it's the same old one. The freedom to fail is the freedom to grow. And God uses fa failure to develop us. It can actually cultivate our character, can help us grow in character. 
Paul said, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials for we know that they are good for us. Goes on to say that it develops strength of character. We can rejoice. Is this your typical response when you fail? Not me so much. When we're at the point of failure, we don't usually stop for a moment and go, yes! It's, that, it's what Peter knew and we know that makes us able to rejoice. It's not the problems we rejoice over, it's what we know that we rejoice over. We know and rejoice over the fact that God uses problems to cultivate our character. Failure has a way of softening our hearts, making us sensitive to others, making us more humble, less judgmental. It makes us more sympathetic. Chuck Colson wrote about this. He was the legal advisor to President Nixon, way up in the chain of command. He was one of his advisors, and he comes to a point in his life when he realizes, as he's about to speak to a prison full of inmates, where he had been a prisoner, he, said, he realizes that all the stuff that he's done up until that point in time, all the legal affairs, all the, all the honors given to him were nothing. He says, no, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, and that, I was, and that was that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could find no self-glory for his glory. And now it comes down to us. What's it like when you face the storms of life? When it's dark, the wind and the waves are crashing in. We've put Peter's sandals on for a few moments. We can see what Jesus was doing through the storm. He's showing us that he's present and that he's all we need. He's our life giver. He's our life guard. He's inviting us to come on the adventure of our lives with him. But at the same time, fear is waving us back. What do you choose this morning, the water or the boat? The boat appears safe, secure. The water's rough. The waves are high. There's a storm out there. Whatever the boat of your life might be, looks safe by comparison. But if we don't get out of the boat, there's a guaranteed certainty we'll never, ever walk on water. We'll never feel what it's like to totally trust in one who controls the universe with his words. We'll never feel the unspeakable joy of being completely and absolutely forgiven for all time. We'll never feel the enormous value and love that God has for us and shows it by giving his son for us. I believe we were made to discover that life is about something more than sitting in the boat, watching life go by. Deep inside, you know you were made for something more. There's something inside of you that wants to walk on water, to leave the boat, the comfort of routine, and abandon yourself to the high adventure of following Jesus. Why not admit our need for him today? Take hold of his outstretched hand and avoid forever that sinking feeling. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.